I hope you will put up with a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your mind may somehow be led astray from the purity and sincere devotion to Christ. Or someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the one I preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if a different gospel is preached from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think for a moment that I am inferior in the least to these super apostles. I may indeed not be trained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We've made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I wasn't a burden to anyone. The brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way, and I will continue to do so. And I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then that his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do tolerate me as you would a fool, then I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord himself would talk, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way that the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit I was too weak to do that. Whether anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm speaking as out of my mind. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 stripes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three nights times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the deep. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in dangers from fellow Jews and from Gentiles. I've been in dangers in the country, in dangers in the city, in dangers at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've been hungry and thirsty, often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who falls into sin and I do not burn inwardly?
What do you hear when you listen to this intensely personal and transparent apostolic rant? Do you hear an apostle who is angry and frustrated in the face of opposition? Well, you do. Paul is enraged. These self-appointed super apostles, he calls them, have ridden into town and preached a gospel that Paul did not acknowledge about a Jesus he did not know, empowered by a spirit he had not received. And the Corinthians had swallowed their sales pitch completely. And Paul is angry. These super apostles are not only features of an ancient ecclesiastical landscape. They tend to appear occasionally even in contemporary world. Super pastors that offer an authoritarian kind of leadership style, lording it over the congregation, its faith and life. They boast about their spiritual sincerity. Steve Shoemaker wrote these words nearly 30 years ago about such pastors, and it turns out they're still around. They glory in their personal strengths, their handsome camera-ready looks, their studied eloquence, their health, wealth, and success gospel. They often live better than their flock. The super pastor is authoritarian in leadership style. The pastor is male because according to their interpretation of scripture, women cannot hold authority over men. He is ruler of the church. He is the final interpreter of scripture for the congregation. He is the CEO unilaterally making major decisions for the corporation known as the church. The super pastor trades in the currency of the culture god of success. If it is successful, it must be right. The numerical growth of the church proves its faithfulness. Paul is enraged. He was the one who had invested his life in these people. He was the one who had spent a year and a half shepherding, preaching, discipling, encouraging, teaching, while working with his own hands so as not to receive a dollar from theirs and not to be a burden on them. And then suddenly these charlatans, these hirelings, have smooth-talked their way into the flock and absconded with some of the sheep. Yes, you're listening to an angry apostle when you read those words. He is righteously indignant. What else do you hear when you listen to that tirade? Do you hear a pastor upset with his people? Yes, you do. He had worked hard to instruct them. They had the best of teachers He had brought to bear the Hebrew scriptures and the traditions of Jesus and instructed them with his words and with his life. And now their fickleness, their shallowness, their failure to recognize counterfeits for what they are has caused them to wander off after these folks. They've become unmoored and taken off from the apostle. And his words of irony and sarcasm land on them like blows. He sounds like a frustrated parent trying to call a child back into the house. But what else do you hear when you listen to this diatribe against these pseudo-servants of Christ? You have to listen more carefully to hear this one thing, to hear it over the din of the anger and the frustration and the sarcasm. What you hear is the voice of a shepherd. You hear the voice of a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. It's the words of an authentic servant of God doing what is necessary in a difficult situation. What you hear there is the sound of the beating of a pastor's heart. Maybe you hear it most clearly in those final lines, chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, verses 28 and 29. And besides other things, I am under the daily pressure because of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I am not indignant? I know from experience that it's 
pretty near impossible to separate personal reaction to attacks on our character, our message, our ministry. When those things come, it's hard to not take it personally. It feels personal. But from a far deeper place in Paul, there flows right here in these words, a protective, caring heart for these believers in Corinth who are being led astray because they are dear to the apostle. It flows, these words flow from a pastor's heart. A pastor's heart is that authentic care and concern for the welfare of the people God has placed into his or her care. The writer of Hebrews describes pastors as those who are keeping watch over your souls and who will give an account. The pastor's heart is that relationship between pastor and people that develops over time as the good shepherd cares for the sheep. The pastor's heart, I think, is not automatically there. It doesn't come fully installed with the call. But I do think, like a brand new hard disk, it's formatted to receive it when the call comes. And with time and experience and service, God, over time, formats our hearts to receive a pastor's call. A pastor's heart is shaped by personal suffering. Paul understood what it meant to suffer against these super apostles. He makes his foolish boast. He says, don't make me read you my resume. Don't make me tell you what I've been through. Don't make me remind you again of what it's cost me to be an apostle and for what it's cost me for a church to be here. He outlines his authority for ministry. He does it in terms of his suffering about those things he's been through. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says he long ago had shredded his other resume. The one that really had all the stuff to boast about and all of his accomplishments. It's not about his accomplishments. That's not what he's boasting about. He, his authority for ministry comes in terms of the suffering that has shaped him to serve. And he begins to outline those things, enumerating what he's been through personally for the sake of the gospel. Suffering is one of those things that clearly shapes us for ministry. We get better at serving by suffering. I wish there were another course to take, but that's the one that is required. Paul had written earlier and writes much in 2 Corinthians about suffering, but he opens the book with that beautiful statement, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all consolation, who comforts us in all our tribulations so that we may be able to comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received of God. Suffering formats the heart or service in a particular way. The experiences of suffering Paul had gone through had shaped him to be with these people and to know them and care for them. Henry Nouwen writes in The Wounded Healer, making one's own wounds a source of healing, therefore does not call for a sharing of superficial personal pains, but of a constant willingness to see one's own pain and suffering as rising from the depth of the human condition which all people share. Suffering isn't anything we have to seek. You don't need to even work about that or worry about it. It will find us in time, and we will experience it. But when it does, it has the potential to shape us to be more useful men and women in the service of Christ. Service has a way of coming, suffering has a way of coming to us. If you live long enough, you will find it. Some of you have already had good doses of that kind of pain already. Your childhood, your adolescence, your young adulthood has already been marked with some pretty intense experiences of hurt and suffering, of loneliness and pain. 
But I have to tell you, there will be more. There will be parents to bury. There will be children to raise and sometimes struggle with. There will be sickness and injury. There will be struggles in relationships. There will be unimaginable losses and sometimes unbearable pain. I don't wish any of these on you. I just know it will be so. It's called life. It will happen as we live through it. And what I know is that all of these experiences are incredibly powerful, sometimes seismic forces that shape the landscape of our ministry and our lives. It is from these experiences more than any others that we become qualified to sit with suffering people and to hear their stories and to offer gospel. You don't have to seek them. They'll come on their own. But when they come, do not flee them. Do not fear them. Lean into them and know that God will use these to shape a heart able to experience and communicate God's love. The hymn writer said, speaks the promise of God, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design, thy dross to consume, thy gold to refine. Suffering shapes a pastor's heart. Paul outlines that. The pastor's heart is shaped by another powerful force that is servanthood, sacrificial service. I'm used to thinking of Jesus as the suffering servant of God, but it's interesting when you read Paul's letters that Paul rather frequently refers to himself as the suffering servant of God. He calls on those passages from Isaiah and others to speak to his role of bringing the light of the gospel to the Gentiles as the servant of God who suffers on behalf of And as servant of the Lord, Paul has certainly paid a price. He's ambitious, but he's not ambitious for himself. He's ambitious for the kingdom of God. It is the nature of servant leadership that one is a servant of something bigger than oneself, higher than oneself. And Paul has found that in his own life. And his servant leadership is seen not just in this litany of sacrificial service, the things he's been through, but in his very willingness to boldly stand in the face of these super apostles and challenge what they are doing to the church. That is an expression of servant leadership. Servant leadership, in my mind, is not about being a doormat. It's not about being passive. It is about having, first of all, an inclination to serve something bigger than yourself. And then whatever is required to serve that cause, one does at whatever cost. And for the apostle here, that includes being willing to step up authoritatively in this moment and challenge this thinking and call the Corinthians to pay attention to what they have, they have done. Servant leadership is about an inclination to serve, but it may take the form of an assertive stand for what is right and still be servant leadership. Paul's servant leadership resume is rather impressive. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless floggings, often near death, Five times receiving the 40 lashes less one. Three times being beaten with rods. Once being pelted with stones, shipwrecked, left homeless, dangers from all sorts of threats. That's a pretty impressive resume. But the point he's making is that he's been paying a price for years to serve. Paying a price more than most to serve. Certainly more than these false apostles have prayed paid that are troubling his church. He's literally for years been investing himself in the lives of these people, these Corinthian people as well as his other churches. And every investment he's made, every experience of sacrificing time and comfort and reputation he has suffered has shaped his heart further for ministry. He has become, by serving, 
shaped as a pastor. He pours his life his, into the mission, into the kingdom, but more particularly into this particular church and these particular people. He's paid a price to serve them. And that's created a place for them in his heart. And he anxiously endures their trials and struggles with them. Tom Oden, in his book Pastoral Theology, outlines some questions that a person trying to discern a call might ask of oneself. And among those questions, which he borrows from Polycarp and Chrysostom, he says, ask how much am I willing to give up in order to serve the poor, the alienated, the sick? How deeply have I probed my own willingness to offer my very life sacrificially, if need be? Isn't the willingness to bear the cross and die to the world, which is requisite of true discipleship, also requisite of ministry? There is a call to sacrificial service, and the act of responding to that call shapes us as pastors. We may not need to seek suffering, but sacrificial service is something we must choose. We walk into it. The talk that you might hear around here from me and Angela Reed and others about self-care is important. It is important to take care of oneself. But self-care, in order to sustain ministry over a lifetime, is not an alternative to sacrificial service. Self-care is not about comfort. Self-care is about wisdom. We are asked, you and I who follow this call, to take up a cross, to follow Christ daily, to count the cost before building, to be good shepherds who lay our lives down for the sheep, to put our hands to the plow and not look back, to be like a hard-working farmer, a disciplined athlete, an obedient soldier. Self-care is not about ease. It's about wisdom. And the pastor's heart is not formed in the comfort of a plush study, but in the fires of sacrificial service. And the pastor's heart is formed in a third place that Paul knows much about, and that is it's formed in authentic community. Last year, about this time, uh, the farmer, poet, prophet, essayist, novelist, Mr. Wendell Berry, that I quote often, was in Austin, Texas. And he and his friend Wes Jackson were on stage holding a conversation about our national food system and responding to questions and answers. And during the Q&A, someone asked Wendell Berry the question having to do with the environment. That was and Wendell Berry responded wisely, as always. He said, there's no such thing as the environment. That's one of those abstractions we hear about constantly, like poverty, hunger, and war. There's no such thing about it as the environment. There is only this place, this piece of property for which I am responsible, this place on earth where I live. Thinking and talking about abstractions, he says, keeps us from acting responsibly. Well, I think it might be fair to say there's no such thing as community. We like to talk about that word and use it a lot, but that too can become an abstraction that keeps us from experiencing life with real people. There is only this group of people here in this place at this time. Like monks in a monastery, our community is given to us. We don't entirely get to choose it. Shopping for a church, which our consumer culture encourages and makes possible, is antithetic to authentic community in many ways. Community is given to us. We do not go shop for it. And we need to learn to accept those God has given us in the community as those we learn to love. Community sounds good in the abstract, but in reality of flesh and blood people, it can get a little dicey at times. This flock we've been called to shepherd will challenge us, but it is their lives, their lives, rubbing up against ours year after year that fashion in us a pastor's heart. We learn hospitality by making space in our life for these people. 
We learn patience by their challenging our ideas and proposals. And they learn patience by putting up with our challenging their ways and practices. We learn love by engaging the unlovely, compassion from engaging the suffering, mercy from engaging the weak, forgiveness by being wounded by thoughtless words. That's where we learn those things. We learn from their questions and their insights, their unschooled theology that challenges ours, their knowledge of parts of the world that we're totally ignorant of, their prayers, their generosity, their faithfulness, their courage, their words of support. That shapes a pastor's heart in community. And those particular people come to matter in a powerful way. What they face in their life, what they are up against, and how they face it matters to their pastor. Their joys and successes, their accomplishments and sorrows matter. What they believe and how they live matters to their pastor. These people, these ordinary people, become entwined in the heart of the pastor as we share life with them. As we study and prepare and preach with these particular people in mind. As we sit with them and plan with them and dream with them about our church. As we disagree and challenge and respond to challenge. As we bury their dead and wed their young and offer them the body of Christ broken for you. The, the, bread, the body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. As we lift them out of the waters of baptism. As we sit with them in hospital rooms and sterile ICU units. As we do this over and over again. These very particular people become entwined and they shape and format the pastor's heart. Their lives come to matter. A pastor's heart is fashioned on the surface of our unformatted lives by these particular people. We become their pastor over time and we will remain so in some degree as long as we both shall live. The apostles' closing words are powerful and Eugene Peterson paraphrases them in the message. They sound like this. That's not the half of it. When you throw the daily pressures and anxieties of all the churches, when someone gets to the end of his rope, I feel their desperation in my bones. When someone is duped into sin, an angry fire burns in my gut. That's what a pastor's heart sounds like when it's healthy. These people matter to them. Like service, engagement in authentic community is something we choose. We can choose to do so. We can choose... just as easily to remain distant from them, to be objective and critical of them, not to enter their lives, not to let them into ours. We can choose to compare them unfavorably to others. We can complain about their traditions or their practices. We can judge their sins. Or we can ignore them and generalize about them as we pour over our preaching text for the week. But alternatively, we can invite them into the study with us We can offer perfunctory prayers in their presence when called upon, or we can become intercessors on their behalf whether they ask or not. We can care for their attendance and their tithes, or we can care for their souls. We get to choose whether or not we become pastors. A pastor's heart is fashioned in the fires of authentic community. That's the difference, I think, between the pastor's heart and the media moguls whose slick TV appearance easily attracts the allegiance of spiritually attentive deficit church members. Not uncommon for some of the poorest excuses for theology to find their way into my church's Sunday school class. Because in a moment, one of these slick folks on TV undermined years of preaching and teaching and was called into question my preaching authority by their slick appearance. It happens. But these super apostles have never held my church member's hand and prayed for them in an ICU unit. 
They've never stood at the head of a child's casket and embraced shell-shocked parents. They haven't sweated over a troubling biblical text before bringing into conversation with these people and what they're going through. They've never held an infant as parents and congregation pledged to be church to that child as it grew up. They've not baptized a 73-year-old man who came late to faith in Jesus. They've not gone toe-to-toe with an angry deacon and had to go back and apologize for words that were spoken and forgive those spoken against them. They are not pastors. They are something else. If you've been called to be a pastor, prepare to have your heart formatted for the task. Shaped by suffering, by shared life in community, by sacrificial service that you freely offer. That's where God makes pastors. Let's pray together. Lord, as best we can do this together, we invite you to have permission in our lives to shape us and form us to be your servants. In Jesus' name, amen.